Thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and study the Word. We ask you to guide and lead and show us what you would have us to see from all this, this section. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos chapter 6. Getting close to it. And starting at verse 1. Do you find it? Oh, okay. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations to whom the house of Israel came. Pass you into Calnel and see, and from thence go to you to Hamath, the great, the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they, be they any better than your kingdoms? Or are their borders greater than your border? You that put far away the evil day and cause the seed of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves on their couches, eat the lambs out of the flock and calves out of the midst of the stall, and chant to the sound of the viol, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with cheap ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. So we're going to look at this. God is pronouncing a curse upon the northern kingdom. And we just want to kind of look at this a little closer. It says, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And this word for ease means secure and careless. They're not caring about anything. They're, they're confident. They're overconfident. And this in history, if you look over history, great empires start out with a great military. They build an empire. And eventually, they start getting lax and lazy. And just, you, we're so strong, nobody can, nobody can tear us down. And that happened to... Egypt, it happened to Assyria, to Babylon, to the Medo-Persian Empire, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the English, and is in the process of happening, I believe, in America. We're just getting lax and at ease. Nobody can beat us. And when, you, when the nation, when an empire gets that to that point where nobody can beat us, somebody's going to beat them. <laughs> it's just a matter of time until somebody comes up and says, okay, we're stronger, we're hungrier than you are, and we're going to beat you, you know, beat you and take your position. And this is where they are in Israel. Israel, well, never really had that high position, but they always thought of themselves that way. God is on our side. We're greater than everybody else. God will never take us down. He put us here into the promised land, and he will never take our land away from us. And even though they were never the mighty, powerful giant outside of when David and Solomon reigned, they, they had this attitude of, we're better than everybody else because God put us here. And it says, you that are at ease in Zion, and we've talked about that, Zion's just another name for Jerusalem. And, then, and, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And it was never a religious uh, high place, but the Samaritans, it was their capital. You know, it was the capital of the northern kingdom. And so they said, okay, God's on our side in Jerusalem. <laughs> He'll be on our side in Samaria. And they always had this high opinion of themselves, which are named among the chief nations. And they would just look, you know, they would put themselves, we're in the center. <laughs> uh, and, every, and it's an amazing thing when you look at the world and everything, because even God puts Israel in the center of everything. It's kind of an amazing thing. All the nations and worlds and languages to the east of Israel write their languages from right to left. <laughs> and then everything to the west of Israel writes their languages from left to right, like you know, all the European languages. And in, your, in all your Asian languages and everything, they all go right to left. <laughs> And God has put Israel in the center of everything and even in the center of languages. And, it, and it's an amazing thing where God puts Israel. God has said, this is my throne. This is my seat, specifically Jerusalem. And we've talked about this. Jerusalem is God's seat. Satan has chosen uh, Babylon, where the, the Tower of Babel was built and, and will be the end time capital of everything. 
And I believe that it's much more than just the spiritual. A lot of people think it's spiritual Babylon and it'll be who knows where. But I really think in my belief that Babylon is going to be the center of everything. The little physical capital of Babylon. And Babylon is rising up in authority in our world today. So it's not hard to picture it taking and being Satan's seat during the seven years of tribulation period. And this is what God has said, you who think you're great. <laughs> you know, and this is the Jews, even today's the Jews' opinion is, even though they're very atheistic in their belief that God put them in their land and they're special because it was given to them by God, whom they don't even believe in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, just, it's cultural to them to say that God put us here. And this is where their leaders are. God put us up there and he says, okay, I'm talking to you, Israel. <laughs> I'm talking to you. And then he goes, Pass unto Shina and see. Now, Shina is a major city in the Assyrian Empire. It's about 100 miles from Haran up by the Euphrates and where the Assyria was. He says, okay, go up there. You know, Assyria is a strong nation. Check them out. Then he goes and check out Hamath, which is a major city in Syria which was about 100 miles further south of uh, Kauna. And then he goes, and also go on and check Gath in the Philistine area. These are all major cities of major empires in their days. He says, check them out. You know, you you think you're so good? Go check these other strong nations out and see. And he goes, then he asks a very interesting question. Are they better than your kingdoms? Are their borders, you know, are their borders somehow greater than your borders? And the answer on this, those questions is, no, they're not. And God has this way, sometimes even with us, we, we can get to a place where we follow God and we're, you know, we're changing our lives and we're walking with God and all of a sudden we can get a little arrogant sometimes and say, well, God, you know, I'm yours, I, I'm your special person. And, and usually we'll get that way when we're starting to fall away from God. You know, we recognize God has put us up in a position, and then as we start to fall away from him, our mind sometimes will play tricks on us, and we think we're still all right with God. And the northern kingdom's thinking, okay, we're okay with you. Now, the northern kingdom has never been okay with God, even before Amos was starting to talk to them. When they broke away, the king says, I can't have my people going to Jerusalem to make sacrifices because they might go back to the southern kingdom again. So what did he do? He started golden calf worship in the northern kingdom, and it was their form of worship from the beginning all the way till the the day that they went into captivity, and yet they thought God was on their side. Even though they were doing everything they could to not worship God from the very beginning, the northern kingdom never had a good king or good godly king and was not following God. Did not go to the sacrifices three times a year like they were supposed to in Jerusalem because their kings were always worried that if they went back to Jerusalem, they would say, well, let's become one kingdom again and, and the kingdom would be reunited. So they did everything they could to keep them from it. And yet they thought they were special with God. Now, how many times do we go into disobedience from God and somehow think, okay, God, I'm okay with you? Now, and it's a really sad place because we can see this happening so many times. Well, Jesus, you know, I asked you into my life. I, I'm eternally saved. I can go do whatever I want to. And if you're getting into that attitude, you've got to be careful. You may not be saved. You may not have ever gotten saved if you can go out and just sin because you're saved. And this is where the northern kingdom was. <laughs> We're God's people. You know, he chose us, we can go do whatever we want, and he's on, he's on our side. And God is saying, you know, you think you're that much greater than everybody else. And sometimes God will come into you and you think you're better than anybody else? And the answer really is, no, we're not. We're all sinners saved by grace, and we never should ever get so big-headed that we think something special about us. Always saved, and a lot of people 
do whatever they want to. Mm -hmm. In which case, I would say they're probably not saved. No, I don't think so. I have said over and over again, if somebody can sin without being convicted that they're doing wrong, they really need to seriously look at their life and say, am I saved because they're probably not. And I'm not their judge. God is ultimately their judge. But if somebody can go out and sin deliberately, deliberately openly, and not feel any conviction about it, and they know that it's wrong. I mean, it's possible to sin and not be enough in the Word to know that you're sinning. We've all been there where all of a sudden we go in and we're reading the Word and we go, oh, uh, God, that, I'm not supposed to do that? And all of a sudden he points something out to us. I mean, that's one thing. But to go out and just say, I'm going to live this lifestyle because I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and it doesn't matter what I do, and we know that according to God it's wrong, and we're not feeling convicted because of that, then I really seriously think somebody needs to look at their life and say, are they saved? Because I believe that once you're saved, you're saved. I mean, God gives us everlasting life, eternal life. By definition, if he gives us eternal life, he's not going to take it away from us because then it would not be eternal life. It'd be, I'm giving you eternal life until I decide not to give you eternal life, and that's a contradiction in terms. He gives us eternal life, and we are saved forever, but the question is, did we get there? And that takes us down to the whole thing that I say over and over. Just saying a sinner's prayer does not make you a Christian. And it, it irritates me sometimes when I listen to these guys on the radio and TV and say, well, if you said this prayer, you are a Christian. And while the words are the right words, Lord, I am a sinner, I deserve, I deserve punishment, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you don't mean them, they're just words. And they're not magic words, abracadabra, you're now saved. They, they are powerful words when they're meant. And when we believe them, they're powerful. And it's been said over and over, two things will surprise us when we get to heaven. Who is there? And who is not there? Because there are people that have spent their entire life in a church, and if you looked at them, you know, they come Sunday morning, they come Sunday night, they come Wednesday night, they come to the revivals. Everything looks like they're a Christian, except that their heart isn't there. I've met them. You talk to them about the Bible, and it's, you'll hear things, well, I'm, I'm a good person. You know, I, de I deserve to go to heaven. Well, I don't know where you're finding that in your Bible. Maybe your Bible says something different than mine. But, you know, without Jesus, you're not going to heaven, no matter how much you go to church, no matter how good you appear to everybody in the world. And by the same token, somebody can be the most awful, wicked person, but they're under conviction all the time and repenting to God and falling, falling on their face all the time, but going back to God and saying, God, I'm sorry, I, you know, I keep... I keep falling, and they're going to be in heaven. And people look at him and say, guy was in the bar all the time. You know, he was on drugs. All, he was strung out all the time. How could he be in heaven? Because he honestly placed his heart in God and was having conviction and having a hard time getting through it. Now, should they get some victory over their life? Yes, we should get victory over our life if we, God is changing us. But it really does come down to this, did, we get, did he become Lord of our life? Yeah, we may struggle. We all struggle because anybody who says they're not struggling is lying. Okay, it doesn't matter how long you've walked with God and, and how good you are, there is some place where you struggle with your life. You know, whatever it might be. And it's going to be different for every single person. Some people it might just plain be pride. They get so prideful. Of, oh, God, God, just look at me. How, you know, I've got my whole life put together. And God said, you know, let's, get back on, let's get back on track. You're not there yet. You know, uh, it could be some outward sin that everybody sees. And the longer we walk with God, the less likely it's going to be an outward sin that everybody sees if we're really being changed by him. Then it gets into our whole mind attitude and our, atti and our attitudes toward people. We may not show it to them, but God is saying, I want you to learn to love. I want you to learn to forgive. Well, you did really good. You didn't speak what you thought to that person, but you were thinking about it. And in your heart, you have done it. And less consequences for not, you know, not speaking it. But God says, there's conviction. If we can live without conviction of sin, 
were probably not his child. And the most wicked person who's under conviction all the time is one of his children. Even though people look at him saying, wow, that person, nothing is right in their life. You know, they don't, they don't seem to be very good at all. But they're going in front of God on their knees at night and saying, God, I really messed up today. I, I messed up again. And God says, you're my child. And they'll end up in heaven. Maybe not with a whole lot of rewards. Maybe not, you know, but they're going to get there because we get there because of what Jesus Christ does for us, not what we do. And this is why we had to be careful not to get self-righteous and saying, I just don't know how that person, you know, God, how can that person get to heaven? Well, the bigger question, how am I getting to heaven? If I'm that self-righteous, am I deserving heaven? And the answer would be no either. And Jesus' biggest problem was with the scribes and the Pharisees. God, we're perfect. You know, we're, we're keeping the law. We're, we, we're fairly honest. We, we give our tithes. We go to church. We give our offerings. And, and he called them whitewashed sepulchers full of, you know, full of poison and death. You know, and people looking at him said, well, these guys have their life put together. And he says, no, their heart's not, not there. And that's where it comes down to the whole thrust of once saved, always saved, really does have both sides on it. Yes, I am saved and I'm going to heaven. Not because of anything that I've done or don't do, but because of Jesus Christ. And because he lives in me, he will change me and perfect me through, primarily through conviction of the sin. And somebody who's a wicked, evil-looking person, if they have Jesus Christ in them, is going to have the same convictions but not have as much success and we've got to be careful. We really do, because if we're judging others, usually we're showing just as much about ourselves as we are them. God, I, you know, I don't know how you'd let them come into heaven. Look at all the stuff they're doing. Or they have done. Or have done. Or usually doing, because we're usually pretty good. If people have done in the past and grown, we usually, okay, they're, they're, they're showing things. But the problem we have is when they don't show victory over their sin, and I'm as guilty as anybody else about that. And looking at somebody and saying, God, how can that person claim to be a Christian and live the way they're living? You know, and I have to be careful of it because basically when I'm saying, God, you know, you're, you're kind of lucky to have me, God. I'm not, I'm not doing what they're doing. And we may not be quite that arrogant, but we really are saying that. When we're standing in judgment of somebody else's sin, we're almost telling God, you know, look how lucky you are to have me. I don't, I don't do those things. Now, meanwhile, they may be looking back at us and saying, well, you know, God, I really don't do that and that that they're doing. And that's the problem with the whole judgment side is we judged by our own self being the standard. You know, God, I don't do these things, so therefore anybody who else is doing it is doing wrong and I'm doing really good. And we tend to not look at the things that we do that are bad. And I've said this, it's interesting at the prison Almost everybody out of the prison thinks they're a pretty good guy. They're better than most of the people they know, especially the ones that have come to Christ. You know, now they're comparing themselves to the prisoners that they live with, who of course from the outside would be looked at that they're all not worth anything. But for them, well, you know, God, you know, I'm not out there doing the, you know, doing the moonshine. I'm not out there doing the drugs. You know, yeah, I'm kind of a liar and a scoundrel, but you know, I'm not as bad as. We need to be very careful about that attitude as Christians. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it is what God says about our heart. In Isaiah, he tells us that all our, all our righteousness is this filthy rag. So anytime we think we've done something that God is going to be really happy about, and he should be happy he has us because of, look at all the good that I'm doing, if it's in my flesh, he says, Ugh, a bunch of filthy rags. Because the only thing that gets us into heaven is the righteousness of Christ. And, you know, we've got to be able to get to where we understand that because oftentimes we get to this, you know, well, God, you know, I've been walking with you for, you know, this many decades and, and years or centuries, God. You know, I've got, I've got so much to give to you because I'm doing, yeah, you know, well, you know, I'm praying, I read my Bible, I come to church, you know, I, I try to testify, you know, I don't do these things, and I don't do these things, and I don't, you know, God, you're just lucky you have me because I am, I am becoming such a good Christian. And God says, uh, 
Well, if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we'll deal with it. But not if not, which is why I said over and over, when we get to heaven and we stand at the beam of seat of Christ, the only thing that's going to last when he puts our works in the fire are the things he has done through us. It's going to be his works that he rewards us for. Anything I do in my flesh is going to burn up, no matter how good it is. You know, we make things out of wood, and they're very, fairly substantial, and there's a lot in Christian circles that is wood. It's not bad. It's just human works. Might even got some really good results out of it to other people who got gold, silver, and, and precious gems out of it. But the person giving it gave a great work, you know, and it's going to burn up. And this is why when people will go, well, you know, I wish I could be like, let's say, Billy Graham. You know, look how many people he got saved. You know, I'm pretty sure Billy Graham's going to get rewards, but, you know, I don't know whether he did a lot of it in his own strength, his own righteousness, or was it all God's work? I don't know. I didn't know the man. Okay, so I'm not going to put myself up there and say, you know, I need to be like him. And I've said it over and over. We look at people, usually pastors and teachers, and go, yeah, look at, look at what they're doing. They're so good. Well, they may only be using one-tenth of everything God's given them, and they may look good to people. But God's going to look at them and say, you didn't use every gift I gave you. You didn't use everything the way I told you to use it. What did he say about the widow who gave two pennies to the offering? She's given more than all these guys that gave out of their abundance because she gave all that she had. She was going to get a, a greater reward in heaven than most of the other people out there because she gave everything. And this is something I tell people all the time. Be careful of how you look at your, at your if you're giving all you can and giving from your, your weakness and from your, your lack of abundance, your gift is more precious to God than the guy who gave one-tenth of, you know, one of what they're capable of and maybe did great works. They built a big church. They, they, they brought all kinds of people into church, and the word of God went out, but they used one-tenth of everything God gave them. God's going to say, I want that person over there that was in the corner that didn't seem to do anything, but they did everything that I gave them the power to do. You, unfortunately, yeah, you're going to get some rewards. You did things for the kingdom, but you had so much more potential. And this is something that in the business world, you look at somebody, and I, I, when I was teaching a, a, in the Christian school back in Baltimore, there were some kids in that school that I was so sad because they would not live up to their potential. They were very smart kids, and they would do just enough to pass. Just enough to pass, and it's like, why? Why aren't you applying yourself? And it, it was heartbreaking knowing that they could do so much more but wouldn't. And yet I wonder sometimes how many Christians are out there that are just doing enough. Just doing enough. They look good to everybody else looking around at them. You know, they're the Sunday school teacher, the deacon. The, they're, the, they're around a lot. They appear to be having their life put together. And I wonder, from God's point of view, <laughs> What does God see when he looks at them? He might just see somebody, you're, you're so underachieving, you're doing just enough, and I want so much more from you. So we want to be careful about all things, whether it's looking at another Christian or somebody that we don't think is a Christian because of the way they're acting, or, you know, and you know, you'll hear it all the time. Well, we're called to be fruit inspectors. Yes, God asked us to look at the fruit of somebody's life, but not to be critical of that. Okay, and we've got to be so careful of it because, like I say, if their fruit is everything that, you know, they're producing everything that they possibly can, and we go, well, you know, you're not doing much. Number one, we may be at the wrong stage of their life. You know, I read the books, I've read, you know, I talk about George Mueller a lot because I like his story. You know, what if you knew him when he was the scoundrel and, and, and everything? You would have rightfully said, this guy doesn't belong to God. Well, how about the first couple years after he was saved when he was still struggling with how to not be a, not be a scoundrel and a manipulator. Now, you'd have looked at him and said, you know, no way that guy's going to do Look at that. He's, you know, he's still manipulating people. You, know, you knew him at the end of his life. It's like, wow, look at this guy. 
and I really believe that he had come a long ways, but you know, where did you know him at? What, what part of his life did you kind of you know, know that person at? Where are we? You know, even though we may say, well, God, I've, you know, I don't feel like I'm doing anything, we need to be careful of that standard because we may be doing so much more than we, we think we are. People watch us. And sometimes just being a faithful follower of God in the midst of trials and tribulations, people will look at you and say, wow, I just don't understand how that person can, can still stay faithful to God with all that's going on in their life. You know, that testimony is going to be something when you get to heaven and you get all the people that come up to you and say, I'm here because I watched you <laughs> be faithful. I saw you do this. And I've heard people tell other people, you know, I watched you and I saw this. It was told to me one time, you know, I watched you in pain serving God and it inspired me in, in my minor pains to serve God. You know, we don't know and we probably won't know until heaven the full extent of what our witness has been to everybody. And we're going to get blessed for things that we don't know because a lot of times we're just living our life and we're doing things that we just find simple. And it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, we get a mother who's just used to taking care of her kids and feeding family and taking care of, you know, sick and doing the same thing to, to the neighbors around them. That may have more impact than somebody coming in and trying to give them the gospel message because this is love in action that they saw. And they're going to go, don't know really what that person had, but it touched me. In around 100 AD, there was a Roman officer that was writing back to Rome and saying, we have cleared the city of all people that are not going through this epidemic or disease, whatever disease it was, except for these group of crazy followers of the way who just won't leave because they're helping the sick. He was talking about Christians who would not leave the town because they needed to minister to the sick. You know, that message is still in the, in the historical archives. You know, kind of blew the mind of the officer trying to get rid of them. You know, you guys aren't sick. You got to get out of town. You, we're gonna, this town is, is dead. And the people wouldn't leave. Okay. What do we have out there that we've done maybe that we've just lived? We've just lived. Yeah. I've heard it more than once where somebody says, you know, well, you taught me more about this in just a few minutes that we talked than, than anybody else has ever done. We never know what, you know, we're just talking, we're just being ourselves, and people are going, wow, that, that brought something out. So we want to be careful <laughs> not to judge ourselves, not to judge others. Now, if you're living under conviction, yes, go to God. And get, you know, if you're living under self-condemnation, there's no condemnation for those who are in, call, in, call in Christ Jesus. And conviction's different. The Holy Spirit is trying to get us to repent and, and, and go, turn to God. That's one thing. But if you're feeling condemned about things that you've done, that's Satan in the flesh after you. It's not God. God does not condemn. He wants us to come to him in repentance and not to condemn us and make us feel bad and miserable. <laughs> and we need to be very careful about that. All right. Back to Amos 3. <laughs> Verse 3. You have put far away the evil day and have caused and caused the seat of violence to come near. Now this is kind of in, it's in poetic language, but he's saying you've rejected all the prophecies against you. Okay? Uh, you've put far away the evil day. Uh, and, you, and instead of responding to uh, the prophecies from Hosea and Joel and and all these guys are going, ah, we're just going to ignore it. And this is a dangerous place to be when we hear God's word and push it aside. Eh, not, 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 not for now, not for our day. America's in that place right now where we're pushing away God's commandments to repent. We do this oftentimes in our life. We kind of just pushed away, ah, not today, I can, I can wait. And God's saying, the day's coming. The day's coming, whether you pay attention to it or not, the day is coming. And if we go to repentance, we can put off the day. Nineveh had Jonah come, in, come to them, preaching 
in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. They repented and lasted another 100 years. Much to Israel's displeasure, <laughs> that was Jonah's problem. He goes, I don't want them to stay alive. You know, that's why he tried to run away. God, I know if they repent, you're going to forgive them, is what he tells them at the end of the book. And God says, there's 120,000 people living in Nineveh. Shouldn't I have mercy on them? And Jonah is thinking, yeah, but those people you're having mercy on are giving us a hard time in Israel. Uh, and this is something that happens. He goes, you're ignoring my word. And I've heard it many times from great glory. He says, the easiest place to get a hard heart is in church. When we hear God's word and we ignore it and we keep ignoring it, we can build a hard heart toward God's word and where conviction has a hard time coming in and we start just being dull. And we need to be very careful. Are we good, active listeners of God's word? And James, it says that, you know, that we can be blinded, we can hear and, not, and immediately forget. And the more we immediately forget, the harder our heart is, the harder we close our ears off, and the less we start hearing the message of God until he comes in with a, with a sledgehammer or a jackhammer and breaks up that heart again and says, you know, start listening. <laughs> start hearing again. And here he says, you know, you have put far away the message. You keep saying the end days are not coming. And, and it's funny, you talk to people about the gospel message and the end days, and they're going, yeah, that's, what, that's what's been said for 2,000 years, especially Christians. You know, they've been talking about Jesus coming back for 2,000 years. He's not here yet. It's probably not coming. You know, he's probably not coming. Well, I have one thing about it. Jesus said he's coming soon. And even though it's been 2,000 years, we're a lot closer to, closer to his coming today than we were 2,000 years ago. It's kind of my answer when people ask me, well, when is your class starting at the, at the prison? I go, soon. They go, yeah, but they've been saying that for three years. I go, well, we're a lot closer today than we were three years ago. Okay. Uh, and this is just it. We sometimes look at God not acting immediately in his patience, his love, and his mercy and say, God, uh, you lied to us. You're not coming back. Well, he's going to come back. In Noah's day, he sent a flood. He told Noah, 120 day years, and, we're, and I'm going to destroy this world. And he destroyed it in 120 years. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he destroyed the entire valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's going to come the time when God is going to say, it's done and I'm going to destroy everything and remake it again. And we've got to be careful. God says he's going to come like a thief in the night. He's going to come when nobody knows that he's, knows that he's going. You know, the parable says if the, if the homeowner had known when the robber was going to be there, he'd have been awake, ready for him. Now, we can picture, yeah, uh, I, you're coming. You, you said you were going to be here at 210. I'm going to be sitting outside my door with my shotgun waiting for you to come. Yeah. The problem is, the robber doesn't tell us when they're going to come. You know, God didn't tell us exactly when he's going to come. We need to be patient and say, he's coming. And stay faithful. He's coming. It's only been less, a little less than 2,000 years since he said he was coming, but he is coming. When? Soon. <laughs> Soon by God's standards. Uh, and he is coming, and we need to be ready for his coming. Ready for him to come and be ready to hear and be ready to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we get to have a celebration. While the earth is being beat up and attacked, we get to go have a seven-year feast. And I can't imagine a seven-year feast. You know, I guess let's go back to those days of, you know, seven days of feasting. You come and go on the feasting as you wanted, you know, and we'll have a feast in heaven. You know, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, people talk about, you know, not having food and everything in heaven, but, you know, there's going to be a feast in heaven. I don't know what he's going to put, what delicacies he's going to put on that table, but there's going to be a heavenly feast. Is going to, you know, I can't imagine what that would be. <laughs> and yet he's going to do it. And then he goes on, he goes, you're, you're, the violence is coming. You that lay upon 
beds of ivy, stretch themselves out on couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stalls. You chant to the sound of vials. You invent musical instruments. You drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with chief ointments and are not grieved at the affliction of Joseph. You know, he's laying out a picture of lazy people. Okay. You're living, you're, you're, you go to bed in beds of ivy or very expensive, luxurious beds. And you stretch yourself out on the couches. You know, you're so lazy, you're not even getting up. You, know, you go from the bed to the couch. And, you know, and this really does happen, and we've seen it over time. And again, we go back to history. You start out with nations that are industrious, producing children, you know, large families because you need families to produce everything. And then you get to the end of the nation and you're lucky to have one or two children per family because the children become a nuisance. Where are we in America? Children are nuisances. You know, how can you afford to have children? How can, you know, what, you, you have children? You know, you can't just pick up and go on vacation when you want to. You can't go out. You know, and I've heard this from many people. You know, we used to go out to dinner every week, and now we have to stay home with the kids. We, we used to go out to the theater and the movies, and now we're stuck at home with the kids unless we can find, you know, somebody to babysit them. That is part of the downfall of a nation. It happened in every great nation. You get to the place where they're just so luxurious that the children become a nuisance in, and keep them from enjoying their life. And we all, if you've been a parent long enough, you know that yes, children come with a sacrifice. The inability to go and do what you want when you want is one of those sacrifices. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I really like it now that my kids are older and I can, if I want to go do something, I just go do it. All right? They're on their own. They're taking care of themselves. Yeah, that's the blessing and when, they're, when they're finally gone. But this is where it is. He says, you're laying on your, you're in a luxurious bed and then you go to the couch. <laughs> yeah, you're so lazy, you're not even working your fields and they have their servants taking care of all of this stuff. He goes, you're on your couches, you're eating the lambs out of the flocks, and you're just eating the, the, your calves out, right out of the stalls. You're not, even, you're not even taking them out to the fields to, to let them get fat and, and grow. You're just so, you know, you're, you're being so lazy that they don't even get a chance to do those. And, you're you know, and for Israel, this is a big deal because Israel was not supposed to kill things and, and eat the blood. They had to go to the temple have it killed at the temple, drained, or at least at the, with the Levites, and have the blood drained and everything. And he says, you're not, even, you're not even doing things the right way. You know, you're not even doing the right way. You're just so lazy, so tired. And again, I come back to our country. Our families are getting smaller and smaller and smaller to the point now where people, if they have one kid, think they have too many kids. I've heard that over and over again. You know, this kid is just ruining my, one kid is ruining my life. You know, and it's, <laughs> take care of each other. But you know, it is a sad thing though when people get to this place where God says, blessed is the man who has a full quiver, who has lots of kids. And what you're hearing now is people have, foregone having kids and everything. They get later on in life and are going, wow, what did I miss out on? I have nobody to care for me. Nobody that out there that cares whether I live or die or, or, or cares about my health. And they're realizing that the family had a great importance to them and they just blew it off. And hopefully people find out before they get to the end. You know, and we see also them tossing their kids away you know, the thing that bothers me most is we see so many kids being raised by their grandparents, and in some, some cases their great grandparents, because they're they're just too much of a nuisance to the kid uh, to the to them. They can't even say, okay, God's given us kids, we're going to take care of our kids. We'll just pawn them off on mom and dad, and we'll go live our our life. But the real sad thing is, mom and dad take the kids, 
And I understand they're taking them because they don't want them abused and, and neglected. You know, but we look at this and say, God has a lot to say about those who are just wanting to live in luxury and not take responsibility. You know, our picture from Christianity is that we are serving God on this life. Why? So that we can be blessed in heaven. And this is really important for us to be able to say, no matter what I go through in this world, it's nothing compared to the benefits of what I am going to have. Paul, and I love it, Paul said, you know, these light afflictions that I'm going through are nothing in comparison to heaven. And we've talked about it. His light afflictions that he was saying, you know, I've been shipwrecked, I've been lost at sea, I've been bitten by serpents, I've been stoned, I've been chased out of towns that I go to. You know, and he gives this long list of all the things. And then, and then he goes, and besides all those things, I have the care of the churches that is a constant burden to me. He goes, all those things that you guys would think are bad, yet those are nothing compared to what I'm doing because I care for my churches. And these are all light afflictions when I compare them to heaven. And so many times we'll look at things and go, God, oh man, God, I'm just so miserable. I'm having such a bad time. You know, does, does it ever, go, ever get good? And God's saying, not this side of heaven. But we have bought into the lies of the world so much that we forget to look at heaven and say, for eternity. I spend just a a century, maybe, if I live a long life, a century living in the pains and toils of this world. And even if it was a millennia, you know, I live a thousand years <laughs> in pain and suffering in this world. What is that compared to eternity in heaven with God? Being totally blessed. We need to really change our mindset and the way we look at things and say, God, I'm not looking for luxury and, and ease of life in this world. But the next, the next, I've got everything. And that's the benefit of being a Christian. God, you've promised me everything. I'm your child, and in heaven, I get to have my ease. I get to relax. I get to, I get to lay on the ivy, ivory uh, beds and the, and the couches and, and just relax. All the struggles are done, and I'm resting in you. I don't believe that we will be doing this in heaven, but we will do more of it in heaven. I believe we'll have jobs in heaven, but they'll be the perfect job that God gives us. And I've, I've had several times, and for at least a period of time, I've had the perfect job. I enjoyed it. It was a great job. I, can imagine, I can't imagine what God's going to say, this is your job in heaven. To have a job you'll be happy with for all of eternity. Because I've outgrown most of the jobs in this world. They, they were fun for a period of time, and not, they did not seem like jobs. But God knows the perfect job for eternity. You know, where he'll have to say, okay, now is the day to rest. I just want you to rest today. Quit, don't, don't go to work today. You know, uh, I, you're, I know you enjoy it, but today is the day <laughs> to just rest. And here he says these people are lying around, eating, eating things right out of the flock. They're chanting to the songs. They're being entertained to death by music. And anointing themselves, sweet-smelling, you know, perfumes. And, and I get to thinking about, you know, what does our world do? They gorge themselves on food. They're lazy, for the most part. They're entertaining themselves to death with movies and songs and, and everything. And perfuming themselves and making themselves look good and presentable to everybody else. And you read this and say, I don't see much in there about what, you know, are you righteous? Are you following God? Are you trying to do what he wants? Yeah. And this is what I keep telling people. Entertainment is probably one of the greatest problems that we have in our world. Because when we're being entertained, we turn off of a lot of our mental capacities. People who vegetate in front of TV and movies and, and music let so much garbage into their brain without critically looking at it. If you were to sit there and listen to a teacher teaching you stupid, bad things, you would probably go, uh, not going to do that. You know, nope, all of a sudden your defenses all pop up. 
but sit down and watch the TV show that you kind of like and, and, and then look back at what they just showed you for a half hour to an hour. And it's like, how did all that garbage get into my brain? You know, or, you, or you come down weeks later and you say and do something, you go, where did that come from? And you think back and go, oh, yeah, that's how, you know, uh, star number one on the show that I like handled the situation. I'm acting just like that. You know, I let garbage into my brain in the, in, for entertainment purposes. You know, you'll hear people, especially teenagers, well, you know, I just like the beat of the music. I'm not listening to the words as they're singing every word to the song that's being played. Now, I don't pay any attention to the words. You know, I'm not paying any attention to the, to the actual you know, happenings of the show. I just like you know, the plot, how it gets from here to there. I haven't paid any attention to the details of how it did it. Well, it's probably true. You didn't really pay attention, but your brain still absorbed it, which is why it's critical. God says to meditate on his word day and night. Get his word into our heart and start meditating on it, thinking on it. And then we start changing to be more like him. And then we go, wow, how did I make that decision? Yeah, that was what I was studying last week. That's what, the, that's what the teacher on the radio was talking about. That's what pastor was teaching, the Sunday school teacher. That was what I was reading about. Wow, God did. You know, I'm changing. We will change and become what we think about. What goes into our heart is what we will become. And if it's godly material, we will become more godly. If it's the world's material, we'll become more worldly. And most of the time, we'll sit there wondering how we got where we got. And very important. And I've shared with you all, you know, and I don't want to be too critical of anybody doing anything because as I look at TV now and I watch shows that I watched in the 70s and 80s and I look at those shows and I'm going, how could I have ever watched this show? How could I have ever thought this show was good? And then I think about some of the shows I currently watch. <laughs> And I don't watch a lot of TV, but I, I sometimes will think about some of the shows that I currently watch. I'm going, how will I feel about those in five to ten years? You know, are we filling our mind with redemptive, godly thoughts? Or are we filling it with the world's thoughts? This is one of the things I experienced yesterday when I, when I was down there with the men. You know, and they were singing some lovely songs, good songs. They were good singers. But all the sing songs were secular songs from the 50s and 60s, before these guys were saved. And I can almost guarantee you their minds were not thinking about God or being redeemed. They were thinking about, what did I do back in the days when this song was popular? You know, what, you know, what, what did I do when I was in the bars you know, singing these songs for my drinks? You know, you know, and this is the problem we have. And I'm not being totally critical of all of this stuff, but it, when we live in the past and in the world, it has an effect. And this is why I keep sharing with this. Does God come out in our conversations? Does he get lifted up in what we do? You know, uh, when, we're, when we're around people, does God come up? And I'm not being saying we have to be you know, forceful and attacking uh, other people, but does God come out in any way, shape, or form? You know, does he get lifted up? Philippians 4, 8, you know, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are right, whatsoever things are a good report, think on these things. If we want to change our heart, we need to be really seriously, yes, Sam, I know, I left out a number of the things. I wasn't trying to quote the whole verse. <laughs> you know, what are we thinking about? What are we filling our mind with? Are we filling it with garbage or are we filling it with God's word? And we're fleshly beings. We're not going to be filling our minds 100% of the time with God's word. The closer we get to it, the better off we're going to be. And we need to be able to recognize, you know, that really isn't something I should be paying attention. That is not something I should be talking about. You know, how many times have we been in the middle of a conversation and all of a sudden realize that we're moving into gossip? We're moving into things that are risque that we shouldn't be talking about. We're moving into a, a realm that is ungodly. You know, hopefully we recognize it before we get too deep into it, but hopefully we recognize it no matter what. And we go, okay, God, yes, I gotta, I've got to change this. 
And I've been there, I've been there many times where I've all of a sudden found, you know, what's going on, conversation going around me saying, no, we're not doing this. I've done it even here in the church a couple of times before Sunday school, you know. This is not a topic we should be talking about people. And I'm not telling them to stop, but it, you know, if it continues, I will get up and leave, the, leave this area. Because I don't want to hear those things, especially once I've recognized where things are going. And I'm just like everybody else. I get caught up in it every once in a while and realize all of a sudden, like, oh, how did we get, how did we get in the middle of this conversation? How did we get here? The flesh will always want to hear the dirt. We'll always want to get the wrong thoughts. And we need to stay focused on God's word to not get there. And we, the more we focus on his word, the more we're meditating on his word, the more we're being changed by his word, the better off we're going to be. Beseech you, Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you be not conformed to this world. <laughs> okay? You know, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. You know, that, and he says you're going to be changed. We are changed to the place where we should recognize the darkness. And you know, if you're around the light long enough, you begin to recognize darkness. You know, and darkness definitely recognizes light. Light hurts their eyes. You know, if you're in a dark room and you turn on a bright light, we all know we immediately close our eyes and we're at least we're back, even if you know, we were expecting a light and all of a sudden, but it hurts when it first hits those eyes that have been looking at darkness. The world does not like the light. And when we're in the light, we start recognizing darkness for what it is. And we see the shadows. We see all the problems. And here, they're saying, you're, you're listening. And then, he says, you're drinking wine from bowls. <laughs> okay. Not even from cups. These guys are talking, he's talking about bowls. And the bowls he's talking about are, are things that are used to throw liquid out. He's talking about basins. Okay, I've washed your feet in this big bowl and now I'm going to throw the liquid out. He's talking about a bowl of that size. Okay, you're not just drinking it from the cup. You're drinking it from great big bowls, which indicates they're drinking it for the purpose of getting drunk. And a lot of people get that way. It's not, not I'm just enjoying a, a glass of wine with my meal. It's not, I'm just enjoying this one drink. It's all I'm going to touch. It's I'm going out to get drunk. And there's, usually people will start with the idea that I'm only drink, I'm enjoying this with my, this drink of my meal. I'm enjoying my glass of wine, my martini, my whatever, and it escalates until the point where you may not be literally using a bowl, but by the time you're on your fifth or fourth glass, <laughs> fourth or fifth glass or sixth glass or whatever it is, you're, you're, not, you're not drinking for the enjoyment of the drink, you're drinking just to get drunk. And he says, that's what's going on. You're entertaining yourselves to death. And judgment's coming. And this is the, the, what Amos is saying. It's coming. You, you're, you're entertained yourself. You think you're getting away with it. And next week we'll talk about the other half of this where God, God brings the judgment, pronounces the judgment upon them. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, teach us to seek and follow you, to, to be entertained, but not to be entertained ourselves away from you. And we just thank you for all that your love and care does for us. In Jesus' name, amen.